0: hello everybody welcome to the sports forum podcast i am ken reed and i am your host at sports forum we try to take a fairly deep dive on a variety of sports issues i'm also a sports policy director for league of fans a sports reform project founded by ralph nader our mission at league of fans is to fight for the principles of justice fair play equal opportunity civil rights safety and civic responsibility in the world of sports sports forum is an ongoing discussion on a variety of topics many of them public policy related for the most part we'll be talking about issues beyond the games themselves our guests will come from all over the country and sometimes beyond and have a variety of sports related backgrounds so with that let's get this episode started Okay, today on the League of Fans Sports Forum podcast, we're fortunate to have Dr. Chris Nowinski join us to talk about the brain trauma, concussions, and CTE in sports. Dr. Nowinski is co-founder and CEO of the Concussion Legacy Foundation, a nonprofit organization leading the fight against concussions and CTE, and dedicated to improving the lives of those impacted. He wrote the investigative book *Head Games: Football's Concussion Crisis* in 2006 co-founded CLF in 2007 and co-founded Brain Bank and Boston University CTE Center in 2008, where he serves as the outreach, recruitment, education and public policy leader. Chris's journey has been profiled in media outlets like HBO Real Sports, ESPN Outside the Lines and the New York Times. And he was the subject of the award-winning documentary Head Games, The Global Concussion Crisis by celebrated director Steve James. Chris earned his doctorate in behavioral science from Boston University School of Medicine and has authored more than 30 scientific publications. Vice Sports has called him the man most responsible for making CTE part of the national conversation. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Ken. Good to talk to you again. I wanted to start there with that last point about the national conversation around CTE. Uh, For the last decade, we've seen a ton of media coverage and films, uh, documentaries, et cetera, about CTE, especially in the pro sports arena and the NFL in particular. But recently, it seems to have died off a little, which is a little scary to me because there's still a lot of people, especially youth and high school parents that need to be educated on this issue. Uh, Where do we stand in terms of CTE, brain injuries, and and the research that you and your colleagues are doing right now? Yeah,
1: so the the research has been going fast and furious, but the coverage of it has been limited because COVID has really dominated media. So even sports reporters that we were working with on stories were pulled off in the COVID coverage for a year. So expect that to come back aggressively. There'll be, you know, starting in August, you're going to see a lot of CT coverage of things that have been waiting that should get people's attention. You're right, though, that because it hasn't been in the news, people are starting to think it's over. I'm literally in the middle of a Twitter conversation with a former NFL player about who just said he's decided, he was going to hold his kid out. And now he's enrolling his seven-year-old in tackle football, and I'm I'm telling him like that, based on what we're seeing, like that would be a really really bad idea. And um, you know, it, it, no one wants to hear it, but so we do have to stay educating people what we're learning because CT is hundred percent preventable, and we're not doing enough to prevent it.
0: Yeah, I think the general public and and the media even focus on concussions as being the primary risk factor for CTE and long-term brain injuries. But isn't it true that repetitive sub-concussive impacts are just as dangerous, if not more so, when it comes to long-term brain health?
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there are two separate issues, but they're both caused by the same thing
0: primarily, which is getting hit in the head.
1: Um, so, we, we did talk about concussion as the cause of CT too much, and it was unfortunate there was a movie about CT called concussion. But uh, with that said, um, it, it, you know, both are bad, but CTE is the one that people understand less, right? We know that five or 10 concussions, you can expect some people to change. People don't realize that, you know, five or 10,000 is to the head... And you might be seeding a brain disease and you would never know it because that person may never have a concussion, may never show any symptoms. Uh, but but the correlation between years of play, which is a corollary for thousands of hits to the head in football, is an extraordinarily strong dose response relationship. The more years you play, the greater your risk, just like smoking and lung cancer.
0: Yeah, I, I think in, in doing a lot of the research or reading a lot of the research, one of the studies that scared me the most is was some purdue researchers who compared the changes in brains of high school football players who had suffered concussions with the brains of players who were concussion free and they found brain tissue damage in both so to me that's really scary because it means brain injuries are occurring without concussions and without players coaches or parents even being aware of it
1: right right and that is the issue um yeah, yeah, We more and more studies are are being able to show both short term and long term damage with hundreds of hits to the head. Football players have a very good chance of having abnormal brains after a season of play. And you know, they're not necessarily recovering after the, with the off season. We're we're seeing it's it's a newer technology called diffusion tensor imaging, which is sometimes hard for people to understand and interpret, but basically their brains are physically changing. And it's, it's sort of a shocking thought that just playing the game is causing your brain to change in negative ways.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that uh, another study with uh, college swimmers showed that their, brains, their brain health improved. They actually grew more brain cells and their brain was healthier after a season of college swimming as opposed to just the opposite of football players after a season of college football.
1: Yeah, and and sometimes the the hard thing for people to sort of understand is that football does a a really, works really hard to consider football to be exercise. Exercise is very good for the brain, but exercise along with hundreds of hits, you're basically throwing away all those benefits of the exercise for your brain. And people need to realize that, that brains were never meant to get hit in the head hundreds of times a year.
0: Yeah, uh, and your research has shown that each year of playing football may increase a player's odds of developing CTE by as much as 30%. Now, does that include the very early years, like youth leagues, Pop Warner football? Is that factored into when you start? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So we were just asking people, you know, we're just literally just calculating years of play and we don't, we tried to look at it and try to understand are certain years of play weighted worse than others? And the answer was no. It might Turn out that way as the sample grows, because the sample is growing in a, very quickly. But so far, we don't see a change. Like, and it's it's logical. Like the idea that you know, a college football player is going to take 800, 900 hits to the head, then they're going to average twenty two Gs per impact. But a seven year old is going to take four hundred hits to the head, then they're going to average nineteen Gs per impact. They're almost you know the same in terms of strength. And those hits to the developing brain just may be much worse than the ones to the mature brain. And so it's not just number and severity, but also where your brain is in its development.
0: Yeah, I think uh, parents and, and adults, coaches of, of little football players, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, they're, it looks like they're really not hitting each other that hard. They're kind of just running each, into each other and following, falling over, but for a developing brain, the, the impact of those forces are still very detrimental, or can be.
1: Well, the, actually, the, football fools you. The biomechanics of football are quite, quite different for kids, because just think about the math this way. Uh, we're literally putting four-pound helmets on 40-pound kids, and they run into each other, okay? So, I'm you know, I, I'm 260 right now. Try, you know, to, to put a if I put a 25-pound plate on my head in the weight room and ran into other guys with 25-pound plates in their head, the energy that would rip through my brain would be extraordinary, right? So you're basically, you know, top-weighting these kids on their tiny, fragile necks. And it's no surprise that, the, you know, energy is going to their brain and we can pick up the damage it's doing already with this new imaging.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a whiplash effect, I would guess.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's both, it's both,
0: and, and you know Lee Goldstein's
1: work uh, from our our team looking at mice has also shown that you know we think of head impacts and, and and damage when the head rotates twists, but we also are proving that energy is literally just translating through the skull into the brain and uh, damaging tissue that way. your head never has to move.
0: yeah, and that that brings up a topic that frustrates me because when I talk to, youth football high school coaches and parents of kids that are playing football they seem to think that there's this magical football helmet that is either existing now or is on the horizon that's going to save their kids from getting this brain damage and and i tell them that uh, you know a good football helmet is great for preventing skull fractures but the brain is like jello inside a bowl and it's gonna be bouncing around against the side of that bowl. And unless you can create a helmet that's gonna cover the brain inside the skull, uh, looking at helmet technology to solve this problem is kind of impossible, isn't it? Uh, It is, I mean,
1: I think people should consider uh, helmets, just the the perfect analogy is filters on cigarettes. The cigarette industry pushed filters, which, which slightly lessened the exposure. Um, you know, in the 60s, a solution to the c- cancer concerns. And of course, it was not. Uh, and and the answer for helmets is there's just only so much you can do with an inch of space uh, with modern technology. So, helmets are, you know, can be as dangerous as they are helpful because they take away all the pain of hit to the head, hits the head, and they make people feel in good
0: yeah, and it's, I mean, we focus on football, but soccer, I know uh, they, they've created some type of helmet for soccer because of all the headers, but you, the same point you raised before about adding that weight to your head, I mean, there can be some positives and negatives to putting helmets on soccer players too, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. We don't, we don't encourage it. Uh, the physics isn't bearing out. I mean, it's sort of like the, the, the idea that if you get in a car accident, people get hurt you know, someone tells you, oh, you don't have a good enough bumper. It's like, really? Was the bumper enough? Is the bumper going to do this? Is the bumper going to stop all that energy? And the answer is no.
0: Yeah. So your organization came out, I think, a few years ago and recommended no tackle football before the age of 14, or basically no tackle football until high school, freshman year. But at the same time, research shows that the brain is still developing as as late as the early 20s so why 14 why is that a magic number and why why not suggest that you know youth don't play football at all until they're adults and and of the age of legal consent um
1: so there is no magic number right so this is just like dry you know setting public policy is just like you know what age you should drive or what age you should smoke or what age you should vote i mean it's like a it's a decision based on the evidence and you, you weigh the, the pluses and minuses. The, uh, the reason that we, we've put out at flag football, u14.org, you can find uh, uh, infographics that explain the many, many reasons why football would be dramatically safer at 14 versus younger. Part of it is brain development issues that are very special between age seven and 12. Part of it is oversight from the state and coaching. You know, part of it is the physiology of the human being. Part of it is the biomechanics of more mature people. Part of it's the ability to get in the weight room and build muscle so you can use your upper body versus your head to stop people. Um, You know, there's a long, long list why 14 is better. And then the question is, well, do you want to have a conversation with the public about whether or not kids should be playing or do you want to just be ignored? (laughs) Right. If you said play till 18, you're just going to be ignored. And I think uh, you know, responsible to say, look, eighteen-year-olds can go bash their heads all they want. They understand the risk. That's the culture we have all chosen to live in with risk. Uh, I can go serve in the military. You can go do a lot. You can go, you know, do dangerous jobs for money if you understand the risk. Um, We think that fourteen is something we can all agree on if people could understand the science. And then if we can get to fourteen, let's have a conversation about what we do about high school football. I think the, the beauty of football that people don't appreciate is that it's such a dangerous and painful game that nobody plays over the age of 18 if they're not being compensated in some way. Right? Almost, almost nobody, right? You're either an NFL player playing for money uh, or you're a college player playing for a scholarship um, yeah, or, you know, or enrollment in the school or something, but very few, like on the order of thousands, thousands or tens of thousands, of adults play without any compensation. So if you only had people start at 14, 95% of the population plays four years or fewer. And if you set all the right limits to football, you might actually not, you know, you'd be, the CT risk might be negligible, right? Like That's it, a real possibility. You said, okay, eight game seasons, no hitting in practice, you know, no two a days, no, all, you know, uh, so we think there's a solution that football can buy into and we'll see if they will.
0: you make a good point i think the nfl after being pushed and pushed and embarrassed publicly has finally done some good things in terms of very very much limiting full contact practices etc but what's scary to me is you know you have a few hundred nfl players but you have a couple million people or young kids playing high school and youth football and you have these kids playing football, going to practices with no trainers, no doctors on site. And these coaches, unfortunately, who don't have a lot of education on brain trauma are having full contact practices several times a week with these kids. So how do we get, how do we embarrass youth in high school football the way we did NFL into making smart decisions about how how many times a week you have full contact practices?
1: I mean we 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 have we have tried to have those conversations and we with youth football and we've realized it's impossible, right? Because nobody controls youth football. Youth football is a capitalist, you know, structured game in which basically leagues are competing for kids and they'll do whatever the kids sort of want and nobody wants to set limits because they'll get a reputation of being soft. uh, and so even the limits that some leagues have set are like absurd limits. Like they're not real limits. And then again, there's no oversight and, and, and no punishment if the coaches don't follow. So um, I think youth football is just, youth tackle football is just broken. And so we've supported legislation to ban it. And I, because I cannot see another way we can get out of it. years, The will isn't there. The infrastructure isn't there. The organization isn't there. Uh, the leadership isn't High school um, is, is, is evolving and the problem is we're really trying to change human beings, you know, and, and, and coaches are shockingly resistant to change and being retrained on how to coach the game. And we're, we're talking about workforce retraining. You know, I, I literally had lunch yesterday um, with the uh, father who lost his son, he played football from 7 to 18, died in his early 20s, had massive struggles at CTE, and this young man's uncle. Uh, is a prominent, famous football coach in high school, who I have had, I have had conversations with about being a leader on reforming the game, and who turned me down. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's the, the the irony is is is, is difficult. It's, it's it's very it's a very sad situation. But um, I you know, I, I, you almost had to wait. Literally, the guy, you have to wait for this guy to retire. He's not going to change, <laughs> and it's a shame but younger you know there are there are a lot there having a lot of people stepping forward in high school football to push reforms and, yeah. and it is it is evolving so i don't think i, I don't, i'm not giving up on high school football i think it could be safer and better
0: yeah i think what's going to happen with high school football is we have all these public tax dollars going to public high schools and i think eventually the insurance premiums are going to be so high for school districts due to lawsuits from moms and dads whose kids have suffered brain damage from playing high school football, that I think the premiums for uh, high school school districts to cover or promote or sponsor football are just going to be so expensive that they're not going to be able to do it. And I think that'll lead to more private organizations stepping up, which kind of gets back to the issue you talked about, about, capitalism and football and competition for players.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, I, I wouldn't be shocked to see it go private um, as people learn about, you know, again, it's, it, there is that significant irony of the education system damaging brains, right? Uh, it's just, uh, it, it's not quite right. Um, that being said, I don't know about insurance. We, we are we a lot of people in insurance. It's really, really hard. it's hard. You can't really sue public schools. And it's going to be very hard to make the case in court that that person's CT was due to what happened in those four years they were in high school because people have exposures in other ways. Um, so, And it, the lag time again for diagnosing it is so long, right? So, um, but it is funny, you know, when we, we have been behind using sensors to monitor exposure put helmets and sensors and let people, let coaches know how many times people get hit in the head as a way to say, this is something we wanna track and reduce, it be a pitch count for the brain. Nobody will do it. It's very No one does it outside of a research structure because the risk management people tell them, now you're creating a record of the damage you've done to people. And they will be able to come back and say, it took 4,000 hits to the head for you. And that is why they have CTE. And so that's wow. a really messed up thing too.
0: Yeah, that, that's messed up. It's also interesting, uh, wow. I saw something the other day that uh, according to the Brain Injury Research Institute, 20% of high school football players in a given season have some type of brain injury during the season. So one out of five kids in every high school football team is having some kind of brain injury. It's just... No, it's, it's higher than that. Is it higher than that? Yeah, yeah,
1: that's, I mean, that's... Um... So one out of 10 is diagnosed with a concussion, and then probably one out of, one out of every five or six concussions is diagnosed. Yeah, and then
0: as we talked about before with that Purdue study, there's brain damage showing up in, in kids that didn't even report any symptoms or have any concussion symptoms or anything at all. So, right. well, uh, all of your, your brain donors have primarily been football players. They've probably primarily been older football players. What's the youngest case of CTE that you found? Uh, is it former foot or college players? Have you found any in former high school players? Where, where are you on that?
1: Uh, actually, so the, the, if, if you go to the concussionfoundation.org website, we have our 1,000 Reasons for Hope report where we profile who the first 1,000 brain donors are uh and on page nine page 11 we actually or sorry page 13 we show the decade of death and so um you, you hear about some of the older people but we have a hundred and 150 almost 150 brains of people died younger than 30 and and 38 of people died at, at 19 or younger um the wow. youngest Confirmed CT case is 17 when he died. Um, the youngest person to stop playing sports who had who developed CT and died young was a, a young man named Kyle Rarup who died at each 20 from suicide after long-term concussion symptoms. He had stopped playing sports in eighth grade. He had CT. So it, we, we know we're giving this to teenagers. We know we're giving this to adolescents. It's just a question of, you know, can you get the insight into... Into their brain. We're actually going to be talking about some extraordinary findings we're finding in young brains. Um, Part of the issue is uh, when people say, like, we're we're solving the problem, and people are starting to get complacent, what they're missing is that bigger, stronger, faster, leading to more brain damage is very real. Right? Like, when when you you think about some of the data points that we have, like like a John Mackey, who died with dementia and is a Hall of Famer, died old, but he had, you know, he had some CT. Uh, anything about a junior, say, out 43, who had about stage two CT. Anything about an Aaron Hernandez is 27, with stage three CT. You know, uh, we're seeing more and more stage three CT cases in their 20s, which is means that they've had it for a long, long time. And uh, I don't think... We would, I don't think we saw that the people who are playing two, you know, 220 pounds, people playing at 300 pounds and are stronger and faster. I think we're seeing more damage in their brains.
0: Yeah, and, and we, we've been talking almost strictly about CTE, but uh, there's research showing that a number of former NFL players between the ages of 30 and 49, that's 30 and 49, who have received diagnoses of dementia, Alzheimer's disease, or other memory related disease is 19 times the national average for that age group. Uh, It's also um, those who suffered multiple concussions were three times more likely to suffer depression. So there's all kinds of stuff going on with the brain in in addition to CTE that is negative and directly related to impacts on the head. Yeah.
1: I was actually with a partner of a former NFL player last night who has a dementia diagnosis in the sports and, and, and is borderline nonverbal. verbal um, And it's just, I mean, that's just so rare. It's just so, it's so horrible to see.
0: What is the, the difference or is there a difference between brain damage in general, and CTE in particular, between males and females, have you have you been able to do enough research?
1: No, we don't. Uh, we don't have the brain donors. So of our first thousand brains, only twenty 28 percent were females, and none of the female athletes at that point had CTE. And and part of that is because you know it takes a good amount of exposure to get CTE, and, and football, boxing, and those sports are primarily male sports ice hockey for females doesn't have checking so it's not the same repetition it's still a concussion problem but maybe not a ct issue um so and then with title nine we didn't let women much until we gave them the right to play contact sports so that generation is starting to age into a place where we might start to see it so it's just going to be a, a generational lag plus we need to help the public get more comfortable about donating mom's mom's brain they're, when I call families, Dad's brain you know, is, is fine, but they're more protective of their, their mothers and daughters.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Uh, we touched on this a little earlier, but to me, what's scary, I was out driving my uh, bike around last fall and stopped and watched a field where there was like five youth football teams practicing you know obviously there's no trainers there and, and if there was any doctors there they happen to be a parent but we're we're having all these games and practices with no medical professionals around uh, at least college and pros you know they have medical professionals that can identify players that look like they might have concussion symptoms or something but given the fact that we have millions of kids playing high school and youth football with very limited medical professionals observing them doesn't that lead to the need to truly educate coaches and adults and even the players themselves so say you know johnny's 14 years old but he can learn the symptoms that he might be able to pick up concussion symptoms in his buddy on the line that others are missing so education remains a huge challenge right huge challenge. Um, so there, there's the
1: question of, is there effective education? There is, um, you know, we uh, we have been using the CDC's training programs for the coaches and parents. I provide the voiceover for those. For, for high school athletes and college athletes, we've been pushing our team up, speak up program, which uh, engages the coach to talk to their team about how important it is to look for concussions, what they look for, what to look for, and then report them to the coach to create a, you know, to change the culture from one where you hid your teammates concussions to one where you uh, you, you report them. Um, and part of the issue is there's also a floor to when you can actually get a young person to understand their own brain injury, right? So like, if you actually think about it on its surface, the idea that we're gonna convince a, a, be able to teach a 14-year-old what a brain injury is, and then teach them to apply those lessons when they have a brain injury. It's sort of like designing the worst public health program in history. Right? The primary prevention role is not asking kids to self-diagnose their own brain injuries. So um, that's partially why we encourage you know, no repetitive brain trauma for children before 14. In every sport, like just you gotta, we got to lower the risks of these concussions. They happen because you get hit in the head. So let's stop hitting kids in the head. Um, and then you know, because so we don't we don't know at what age they can start internalizing this information. And then once they do, though, you're right. Like at the high school level, it's sort of like you got to get you got to. It takes a village. You got to have everybody know because as, as you as we learn about more and more families and cases, whether it's our, our, our brain donation program, whether it's our helpline, the people who get in trouble, some there's a breakdown somewhere it's, it's, it's them not recognizing an injury. It's a parent not recognizing their injury. It's their medical people not recognizing their injury. Um, it's not having those people available at the time you were hurt. It's access. Uh, it's a, there's a million different reasons why people get into trouble. And it, it, you, we are, we don't put enough effort into, um, trying to prevent those things from happening yet. Is
0: there a, a test that, uh, that parents or coaches could Administer quickly on the sideline that you think is effective at this point.
1: Well, there's um, the simple answer is there's there's more tests that are being put out there. Um, they there are some with better and better data saying that they're they're effective. Like there's no perfect tests, right? But it was interesting. I, I saw some uh, some data coming out of um, some. College studies that showed that of the tests available, um, the COVID test was performing the best, which is something that people can do as individuals. A lot of the tests are primarily focused on having medical professionals do that and take a long time. So, um, so yes, I mean, we don't, we don't endorse, you know, any specific tests at the Concussion Legacy Foundation, but we do try to help people understand what's available and it you know, the we we encourage innovation in that space
0: what's your recommendation for teams in terms of how much contact they should have during the week i know the ivy league i think has eliminated full contact practices during the season is that correct and is that something They're tackling that
1: to the ground yeah hard tackling to the ground which is different than eliminating full contact
0: okay yeah
1: in a sense yeah
0: so which, what do you think would be ideal for, say, high school football teams in terms of how much contact during the week in practice?
1: Um, I think uh, what we try to tell people, because they're it's sort of like setting, like, what's the safe number of cigarettes to smoke or what's the safe lead exposure? Like, there is no sort of safe number. So what we encourage you will do is to, can you... Figure out how. To, what's the minimum amount of contact necessary to teach them how to play safely? Like that, you know, if somebody's if somebody drops their head and of up paralyzed, they might need a few more reps on how to tackle safely. But beyond that, you know, there's a not much of a good reason to get people to tackle more. And I think you know, I, I like to highlight what Buddy Tevens has done at Dartmouth, which is create a program that's very successful and has very ha- you know good tackling, some very good defense. And they never tackle each other in practice, their entire career. Yeah. So they they like, move, eat,
0: moving yeah. dummies or something. Right. Tackle. Right. Right. They could,
1: they, they invented a, 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 a yeah, a dummy a robot that they could
0: tackle. Okay. Yeah. You know, the winningest coach of all time in college football is a guy named John Gagliardi at a division three school in Minnesota. Um, and he was ahead of his time. He, he didn't tackle at all during practice or very little. And I think he's won three, four. I mean, he passed away now, but I think he won three or four or five national championships and a ton of conference championships. And his his philosophy was that you can teach the fundamentals of football without doing that. And that it was an advantage to him that his players weren't beat up and they were healthier and, and more excited to play tackle football on the weekend. So that I think a lot of coaches are afraid that if I cut back on full contact, that I'm not going to be competitive. But that's not necessarily the case, as the guy at Dartmouth proved and Gagliardi proved. Right, but but um, the
1: problem is that coaches get fired all the time because their teams are soft, and they rarely get fired for hitting them too much. Yeah, you know there was a, a study that came out. It was one of the worst things that I've seen in a long time was um you know we've been pushing this don't hit and tackle don't tackle don't hit and practice in practice football you know since the early days and so at a meeting in the 2010 when the nflpa put together first advisory board that the, uh, the mackie white committee that i've been on we advised the players like we showed them the data that said way more than half their hits are happening in practice you don't need them and they bought they bought into that and now we don't know how many hits are happening. We don't, you know that only 20% of concussions happen to practice at the NFL level. That just shows that they're not hitting in practice. Um, the NCAA study that's been ongoing just published a paper that said, to this day, seven, over 70% of concussions in college football happen to practice. Wow. And two-thirds have had impacts. And that's knowing that for a decade the NFL is been hitting in practice. Yeah, coaches you know don't have to hit in practice but they're all too scared to learn how to coach another way um and and the and the the scariest thing of all is this was data from six universities that have been overly studied where like like at unc wisconsin they've had medical teams on the sidelines for decades and they're still hitting that much I, I, i i fear for the schools that weren't monitored because the monitored schools were embarrassingly dangerous and um i don't I, I i almost have no hope for college football because nobody was willing after you have that study no one was willing to step forward and say we should change
0: it so it's it seems like it's this culture of uh it you have to be like a vince lombardi type coach kick him in the butt uh break them down before you can be successful is is that what we're fighting it's more of a sociological kind of challenge right
1: exactly it's a, it's it's a you know, this weird form of masculinity that's, that's not focused on the outcomes for the people that you're trying to, to, to teach. <laughs> you know, it's like the last thing you're worried about is their health. It seems like the first thing you're worried about is your reputation and, and your, your millions of dollars you're making uh, while the players are unpaid. It's just, uh, I, I'm so uncomfortable with college football right now after seeing that death.
0: Yeah. Well, you, you played football yourself, right, at Harvard? i did so how many how many years of football did you complete just eight luckily yeah so, four years of high school four years of college. and you had multiple concussions are are you anxious when you get up every day that you could be leading down the path of cte yourself or are you doing anything to try to prevent that yeah yeah i mean um I mean, we,
1: we have no evidence-based prevention, but I'm certainly living healthier than I ever have before and focused on brain health and the, recognizing that um, CT is not the only variable that determines your outcomes. And so what we preach to our, our followers is that, you know, diet, exercise, sleep, all these things actually do yield outcomes. And so control what you can control, get the medical help that you need. Um, and then, you know, my days are dedicated to advancing the field of research of CTE so that the truly brilliant scientists out there can develop treatment for us.
0: Yeah. Uh, the weird part about CTE, I think, is that we don't really know why some players get it and some don't uh, that have had similar number of hits, uh, which leads to- I don't think that's weird at all. No? And I, let me just Let me just reframe that for you. Why do some people get lung
1: cancer and some people don't when they smoke?
0: Good point. Good point. But so, never we will
1: never know. We will never know. There's way too many variables.
0: Is is there any genetics links in yes. something like both yes, both lung cancer? Maybe there's genetics there too. No, there think. are genetics account for part of it in, in
1: smoking and they will account for part of it. With CT, we've published one gene that seemed to have an effect on both pathology and symptoms. There's, we, we basically have to get more than a, th- we have a thousand brains. we need to get a few thousand to do good genetic studies. So we're on our way, but um, we, they, we will find that certain genes increase your risk by 20% apiece or 10% apiece. Um, and that will account for some of the discrepancy. There's a lot more discrepancy. And it has a lot to do with all the other variables that come with getting hit in the head, the frequency, the intensity, the duration, the magnitude. Um, you know, the, you know, you'll find it's just you know, age started, the age the, you um, started. There's going to be a million variables. But um, we just know that every environmental exposure affects everybody differently. So we have, but now that we have numbers, we can show these trends of increasing 30% per year. But for you, it might be increasing 50% per year. And some people might be increasing only 10% per year. But the concerning part is that nobody's protected. That's the one thing I think we've proven is that there's no genetic protection against this. And that's why over 90% of our NFL sample, which is even much larger than it was when we were 110 and 111, um, that the, the, you play long enough, you can't avoid this.
0: Yeah. So what, what is the latest uh, numbers in terms of the former football players' brains you studied or NFL and how many had CTE?
1: So we only now release those numbers uh, with updated publications. So there's more and more publications in the pipeline. Uh, you know, the last publications we had, you know, were in the 300 or so football player studies. We now have the first thousand brains. We had 708 football players as the primary exposure, so probably about 800 football players overall, um, and we have 300 over 300 NFL players now. So as the studies come out, you'll well, you'll see the numbers, but they, they don't trend that differently from what I've seen. I don't have access to all the data. From what we've seen in general, which is over 90% of NFL players, over 70% of our college players, and over 30% of our high school players that we have in our study have had it. And while our we, people are more likely to donate when we have symptoms, the one thing we do know is that with the NFL work, because we know the denominator, we know that over, from 20, 2008, 2015, we got 10% of the brains of NFL people who died. And 99% of them had it. So we know there's a minimum 1 in 10 NFL players have this disease is probably much higher
0: yeah well how how close are we uh, to being able to diagnose and treat cte in the living
1: closer than ever but still far away you know we're we're doing those studies uh recruiting heavily for new tracers to identify tau with pet scans and imaging blood tests spinal fluid taps we just have to do a lot of work We're, we're we're sort of um you know uh fighting uphill battles not enough people working on it not enough funding in the space i would you know sort of one of those things like everything went right and like the things we think could work today panned out you know we have a diagnostic that people would trust in five to ten years if things don't pan out we'll keep hunting
0: yeah and i guess even if you can diagnose it in the living there's not a ton of treatment available other than stop getting your head hit (laughs)
1: Well, that's that's today, but what what people who don't live in the industry realize is that
0: the reason why no one's
1: developing CT therapies in in, in an aggressive way is because there's no way to get them approved, right? Because if you can't diagnose CT, a drug company can't recruit patients for a study. And if they tried to recruit patients too early without knowing, being certain they had CTE or being confident they had CT, they could ruin drug that works because they tested it on the wrong patients, and they would just go throw it away. Or, but it might work, so we have to develop that diagnostic for them, and then it'll be we're off to the races trying to treat this thing. I hope you know we're trying, we're trying to try and inspire the drug companies to you know, we, and we're also trying to prove the size. You know, we'll be able to prove the size of the problem and help people realize the value of the investments too. So we need that diagnostic more than anything right now.
0: Yeah, good point. Well, I appreciate your time. If people want to learn more about brain injury, brain trauma, concussion, CTE, where can they go?
1: Concussionfoundation.org is the place to go. Then all our social media accounts, uh, you can find there. Um, you know, We, we really are, we, we just redid our website. Um, we're really focused on the patient experience and people who are concerned about loved ones. So you'll find a lot there. We have a new helpline. We just helped our, uh, almost our 3,000th person um, so we're, we're if you are concerned about this, is then you care about concussionfoundation.org is the place to go.
0: And that's where they can find that report you mentioned earlier. I think it's uh, I got it as a thousand reasons for hope. How the first one thousand legacy donors studied at the brain bank are mapping the future of brain trauma research. You can yes. that, you can find that report there too
1: you can find that report there. You can see that, uh, you know, some of our families have shared quotes about the experience. One of them that wasn't out there before publicly is, you know, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, donated his father's brain to us and talks about that in there. So it's, it's interesting stuff.
0: Yeah, I, I think uh, some of the saddest stuff I've read about this problem is not just about the victims themselves that have CTE and had a terrible quality of life and early death, but the loved ones around them the the wives the kids that had to watch their loved one just deteriorate it's it's devastating
1: we just started a support group uh for our siblings of those who've lost brothers and sisters young to this because it does it it it, it affects the family in tremendous ways and we're actually finally publishing research on that and we're going to share the world but you know, you're not just doing this to yourself you're really affecting
0: your children, you're really affecting
1: your wife. Your and the young people were affecting our parents.
0: Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time and keep doing the great work. I mean, you've you've pushed us down this road a lot further than we would have been without you. You're doing great stuff and appreciate your time. Thanks, Ken. Good good to talk to you again. Look forward to doing it again soon. Okay. Dr. Chris Nowinski, co-founder and CEO of the Concussion Legacy Foundation, has been our guest and We'll talk to you next time on League of Fans Sports Forum. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of League of Fans Sports Forum podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. You can follow Sports Forum and get information about episodes on Facebook at Sports Forum Podcast. And be sure to go to ligafans.org to find our latest work on contemporary sports issues. Remember, anyone can be a sports change agent. If you see something in the world of sports that could be better than it is, get involved. Whether that means with the local youth league or at the national level with a major sports public policy issue, you can make a difference. Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple once said, the ones who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. So the next time you see an opportunity to enhance the positives or mitigate the negatives in sports world, go ahead and get a little crazy. Until next time, take care.